I brought some inquiring minds along, and if you don't get it in the mail, uh, maybe you could pick pick one up over there if there are any left. There, and um, all you have to do is send in your name and address to the website, uh, and you'll get it twice a year. It's a two times a year journal. I'm the co-editor, and uh, I wrote a piece uh, in this issue about excavating my science notebooks. And I thought I'd just read you a little piece here. Um, I never really used to like science. It always seemed to me like just a bunch of uh, facts to be memorized and, you know, get good grades on in tests. But um, I think when I started to practice and do meditation, I actually became interested in science because I realized that it was really all about me. So, um, and now I just, I read science all the time and I'm always putting down new little facts in my notebook of, that I run across and often facts or ideas that point to the Buddha's teaching of, of uh, Dukkha or Anicca or Anatta or, and uh, sometimes they're just uh, whimsical pieces of information. So I'll read you a couple of uh, a couple of things that, from my science notebooks. Um, of course, one of the problems I have with science, one of the only big problems I have now, are the big numbers, uh, which most of the time are pretty incomprehensible to our little minds, you know, and our little perspectives. They're just the numbers are so big that we can't even begin to fathom what they are referring to. So uh, I read somewhere recently there are a hundred sextillion stars in the universe. I mean, who am I to refute that? It's, uh, you know, <laughs> some scientist actually uh, counted them. Uh, and another scientist claims to have figured out the size of the universe and it's 10 billion trillion trillion cubic light years. Okay, approximately. And uh, this was as of May 2006. Anyway, I, I sometimes get confused because there's so many numbers in, in my head. I, there are either 50 or 100 mil, uh, billion galaxies and there are either 50 or 100 trillion cells in your body. And sometimes I confuse the two categories. I can't. If they figure out there's exactly the same amount of cells in your body as there are galaxies in the universe, that might indicate that there is something going on here. <laughs> Aside from just random chaos bumping into itself. So, uh, but the conclusion, with all the big numbers of science, it turns out to be much easier to be a mystic and see it all as one, <laughs> right? And, and the main question, as always, who's counting? Um, okay, this, this, uh, this you got it. Uh, I put it under the title Yuckology. Uh, I've been reading about laughter. Research shows that when you have a belly laugh, you breathe in six times more oxygen than normal. 
And some experts estimate that 20 seconds of laughter is equal to 20 minutes of cardiovascular exercise. <laughs> and usually there's something funny as well, which is its own reward. Uh, but actual scientific studies have been done recently on the vocalization and burst rates of laughter. Finding that across cultures, the most constant consonant of laughter is H. Most of us in the world go ha ha or he he or ho ho or he he. And the researchers also included in their conclusions that nobody laughs with mixed consonants like ha fa ka. No, nobody does that. And they discovered that in their research. But the really fun fact is anthropologists now believe that the, that, um, the human ha-ha evolved from the rhythmic sound made by other primate species when tickling and chasing each other in play. They make a kind of hoo-hoo sound. And primates like to tickle each other. And one scientist has determined that the first joke ever <laughs> was a fake tickle. When the gesture to tickle was made but withdrawn before contact. <laughs> Fooled you, you know? That, that was the first joke. Okay, one more little piece here. Uh, uh, I read in some Buddhist literature, probably the Abhidhamma, that the, Buddhist, the Buddha exper experienced things changing millions of times in the blink of an eye. Um, and uh, that was pretty phenomenal for his time. And he did it without any laser cameras or atom-smashing machines. But now inside the subatomic world, we find evidence of a, an impermanence that is so impermanent, it makes our ordinary reality seem frozen in time. Way down inside of everything, where the quarks are doing a line dance inside of an electron, events are occurring in increments far shorter than the blink of an eye, which is considered to be one-tenth of a second. In the subatomic world, time is sometimes measured in what scientists call attoseconds which is a millionth of a trillionth of a second. It takes an electron about an attosecond to travel all the way around a proton. Meanwhile, inside the proton, perhaps one level, level deeper into reality, an attosecond would be regarded as a long nap. Down here, time is measured in zeptoseconds, a billionth of a trillionth of a second. Zeptosecond. <laughs> And I think at some point the physicists realized that they had entered a Marx Brothers routine <laughs> where the jokes are coming so fast you begin to see that it's all a joke. So when they started to measure things changing even faster in trillionths of a trillionth of a second, they named it a yoctosecond. So you have atto, zepto, and yocto. Hello, I must be going, right? All you can do is smile and let go, right. Okay, so that's in the inquiring mind, and uh, please feel free to uh, sign up and check out the copy over there if you don't get one. And this, uh, I had, uh, before I, this is not the subject of my talk, but I got this on the internet. Somebody sent it to me. In one of history's more absurd acts of totalitarianism, China 
has banned Buddhist monks in Tibet from reincarnating without government permission. <laughs> this is real. The Chinese want to get control of uh, the succession to the, uh, to the Dalai Lama and the high, high monks. So uh, they've banned... I mean, I don't know where you go for permission, you know. <laughs> Do you get to sort of indicate where you'd like to travel to, where you'd like to, what you'd like to become? Probably not anywhere but China. Okay. Now, you all expect me to be funny when I come. People always say, oh, here, here's the funny one. Well, we're going to get grim tonight. We're going to get down tonight, really, because it's autumn. And, I, yeah, I always get melancholy in autumn. I don't know about you. But, you know, you, you, you start to see things uh, withering and dying, and the light begins to grow dim, and um, there's a chill in the air, and thoughts of death and decay. Uh, that's why we celebrate Halloween and the Day of the Dead in the fall. And uh, I, I always find it, you know, even in spite of the glorious light that we get in Northern California in the autumn, there's always a kind of tinge of sadness. And, and so I, I think that it's important that we allow that and explore it. Ryokan, the great uh, Zen poet of Japan, he, he was a very sentimental guy and very often expressed his own kind of melancholy about life and being a solitary monk. With, I, with my staff, I go for a stroll walking to the foot of the northern slope Day and night winds moan in ancient evergreen forests. Old corpses lie buried under the earth. What can they expect to find through that long night? Foxes and wolves lurk in the dusky underbrush. Horned owls hoot on wintry branches. A thousand years from now, ten thousand years from now, is there any of us who won't be resting here? Aimlessly, I linger a while, unable to bring myself to leave. A cold shiver runs down my spine. I clutch my robe more tightly. Somebody sent me a haiku for Halloween. Halloween, my skeleton overdressed. This is the time when we, when we play, when we play with the dark side, the goblins and the ghosts and the snakes. But if you're a Buddhist, tra traditionally, you would, you would say to yourself that the scariest thing in the world is the prospect of another life. You don't know what you'll end up being. You might be a hungry ghost. 
You know, those are beings that are born with big stomachs and this tiny proboscum that they have to get, they can just barely get any food in and the stomach is continually big and empty. It's kind of unsatiable desire to live as a hungry ghost. You wouldn't want to be there, would you? Or is that maybe describe a little bit about where you are now? Are we hungry ghosts in this culture? Mm. You know, the street, saying, the street slang says, life's a bitch and then you die. If you're a Buddhist, life's a bitch and then you die, then you're reborn, then life's a bitch and then you die. <laughs> and uh, next life, you could end up in one of the hell realms if you aren't careful, children. I mean, I, I could get out a, you know, a book of, you know, a, the Majjhima Nikaya or something and wave it at you and say, better be good. Or you'll go to maybe the hell, the cold hell realms. There are cold hell realms and hot hell realms. The cold hell realm are Buddha, the blister hell realm. This is a dark frozen plain surrounded by icy mountains, continually swept by blizzards. Inhabitants of this world arise fully grown and abide lifelong, naked and alone while the cold raises blisters on their bodies. The length of time in this hell is said to be the time it would take to empty a barrel of sesame seeds if one took only out a single seed every hundred years. Don't want to go there. And then there's the Narar Buddha, which is another realm down in the cold hells. The burst blister hell realm. Even colder than the previous one. And here the blisters burst open. The hell of shivering. We're being shiver in the cold making an at 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 town sound with their mouths or chattering teeth hell realm. Really, they're different uh, levels of shivering and shaking and chattering. And, and the great lotus hell realm. Here the whole body cracks into pieces. And the internal organs are exposed to the cold and they also crack. You want me to be funny, huh? <laughs> You better clean up your karma while you've got a chance. The hot hell realms. Mm. Sanjiva. In this hell, the ground is made out of hot iron heated by an immense fire. Beings in this hell appear fully grown, already in a state of fear and anxiety. As soon as the being begins to fear being harmed, others appear and attack them with iron claws and as soon as the being experiences an unconsciousness like death, they are suddenly restored to full health and the attacks begin again. Other tortures experienced in this hell are having melted metal dropped on them, being sliced into pieces and suffering from the heat of the iron ground. These are horrific. That's what happens to you if you're not good. Can I get a witness? <laughs> but what about this life? 
this one we're leading now, is this a, a heaven realm? Or just, uh, just one rung above some of those hell realms? Did you ever see in the world a man or a woman 80, 90, or 100 years old? Frail, crooked as a gable roof, bent down, resting on crutches, with tottering steps, infirm, youth long since fled, with broken teeth, gray and scanty hair or none, wrinkled with blotched limbs? And did the thought never come to you that you also are subject to decay, that you cannot escape it? Some monks in Thailand greet each other by saying, brothers and sisters in old age, sickness and death. There's a lot of uh, pointing that the Buddha does towards the reality of this existence and the dark side and what we have to face being born in this realm. And the reason for him pointing at it is twofold. One, so that we will have the energy to liberate ourselves so that we won't add suffering to the inevitable pains that come from being human and living in this realm. But also to demystify this story we tell about ourselves. I mean, we, we try to put a, a happy face on this life. And this is not to deny that there's not, that there's not joy and beauty and love and but we have to keep looking at the, the truth because otherwise we'll be living in ignorance. We will, we will put too much paint, uh, good paint on this existence. The first noble truth. Birth is suffering, decay is suffering, death is suffering, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, despair are suffering. Not to get what one desires is suffering. In short, the five aggregates of existence are suffering. That's the Buddha's first noble truth. I found a, a great relief when I first heard that. I realized that I, it, it wasn't, I wasn't singled out for special punishment. You know, that we're all in this together. This is what we all have to face. It was a kind of, you know, the relief of the universality of our suffering. It's not just mine. I have this uh, little personal litany of facts of life to sort of rub your noses in it further. First of all, you don't ask to be born. At least you don't remember asking, right? Sometime in early childhood, you kind of wake up and, damn, I'm in a life. You know, you realize, yeah, I'm, I'm alive and I'm a person. I've got I to live this life out. And everyone who's born is born with a very powerful survival in instinct which makes us want more than anything else to stay alive. So we didn't ask to be born, and we don't want to die. It's like nature has trapped us in this life. 
So here we are alive. You've got to feed this body a few times a day, right? To keep it going because we really want to stay alive. That means in order to eat, we've got to either hunt or in our world work, type, think, schlep, do something so that we get money to buy food to keep this body going. We have to fight gravity. Every time we get up and out of bed in the morning, you fight gravity. Every, with every step you take, you're fighting gravity. You're always wondering how you're doing in comparison with everyone else. That's part of what we inherit. Evolution uh, has given us that, that instinct to see, you know, here I am in, in this tribe, and how, they, how are they doing? Am I doing, where am I on the, in the pecking order or the, I don't know, the stroking order? And we're not told exactly why we're here or exactly what we're supposed to be doing while we're here. We're basically given just enough consciousness to know that we do exist and that someday we will die, which we very much don't want to do. <laughs> These are the facts of life. As uh, Wavy Gravy says, if you don't have a sense of humor, it's just not funny. <laughs> the Hasidic Jews used to have a saying, if God lived on earth, people would break out all his windows. <laughs> I mean, who invented this, right? But we have to, you know, we're driven to kind of make it seem really pretty special and wonderful. We tell the story about life. It may partly be because we can tell stories and because we see ourselves in time that we begin to create a whole drama around our existence and give a great deal of weight to our individual life, you know, as humans. I have a theory, uncorroborated, but uh, that we gained all this pride when we stood up on, on two legs, you know. And we kind of looked down at everything else and thought we were so great. And started to think that we were the reason for all of creation. You know, that uh, we were the center of it all. We've had that story for a long time now as human beings. Of course, now science is beginning to uh, shed some doubt on the fact that we are the center of the universe, considering that we're on the edge of one galaxy, a spiral galaxy in, the, in a sea of galaxies. I have this quote here from Charles Darwin's Secret Notebooks. He says, man in his arrogance thinks himself a great work, worthy the interposition of a deity. It is our arrogance, our admiration of ourselves. When Darwin was, was first writing his uh, evolutionary uh, research and theories, 
He said also in his secret notebook that he felt like he was committing murder. That it was that heavy to think that, you know, suddenly this story that humans have been carrying for so many millennia was suddenly being challenged. The Buddha really wants us to demystify what this, what's going on here. It's a, a big part of his teaching. He wants us to see the whole, our whole existence as dreamlike, ghost-like. This is from the Visuddhimagga. There is no self residing in body and mind. Paradoxical though it may seem, there is a path to walk on and there's walking being done, but there's no traveler. There are deeds being done, but there's no doer. There's blowing of the air, but there's no wind that does the blowing. The thought of self is an error and all existences are as hollow as the plantain tree and as empty as twirling water bubbles. In the Abhidhamma, the Visuddhimagga, even in some of the suttas, you find experience being taken apart that the I, what is happening here in this experience is the I making contact with form, uh, I consciousness arising, the three creating what we call seeing, and that is as simple as what happens. And then, of course, in the continuing sequence, if we're not really mindful or aware, then if the form is pleasant, we immediately begin to desire more of, of the pleasantness. If it's unpleasant, we react against it. And thus the whole uh, phenomena of our experience is created. But that's all that's going on. Sometimes when I look at my mind in meditation, I realize, you know, I didn't order this mind. Being born a human at this particular moment in, this, in the process of evolution on this particular planet, this is what I got. A mind where you have to struggle to kind of break free of its, its deep conditioning, both biological conditioning and your own psychological conditioning. I mean, you know, you, you've, you've seen it. You sit down sometimes, you look in there, it's a horror show. <laughs> These thoughts, these obsessions running over and over and oh my life, oh my love, oh my money, oh my, oh, ugh. you know, it's just, and, and you see the incessant nature of desire in there. I want this, I want this, and it's never enough and you just get one thing and another thing appears on the wheel of desire. Desire doesn't care, you know, what's next? I read a Newsweek, there was a Newsweek uh, about three or four months ago. That the cover story was entitled, What We Will Want Next. It was like, you know, there's more coming, you don't have enough yet. It's one, of, one of my mantras is, enough, enough, we've got enough stuff, enough. Okay, so um, science is, I think stepping in to help the Buddha to demystify life. There's a t-shirt that was uh, 
designed by the genetics uh, biology department in Santa Cruz. There's a picture of a banana, and it said, we share 25% of our DNA with bananas. <laughs> Get over yourself. <laughs> we get very identified with this head because that's really actually where we think we live, right? Because that's where all this, you know, the kind of processing goes on and the memory and the stories are up there. And uh, heads are us, kind of. <laughs> Which is one of the beauties of meditation is we actually begin to understand that we are, uh, you know, we also uh, are animals, mammals, and breathe. And but um, they've done studies or, you know, looking at evolution, they've discovered the origin of heads. And uh, the first heads were uh, clumps of extra cells in these little marine-like creatures that started to grow up around the mouth so that the mouth could be manipulated more easily to uh, find food and grab it and, you know, ingest it. And then the senses started to grow up around those little clumps of extra cells around the mouth so that the food could be seen better or uh, creatures that wanted to make you into food could be seen better and hearing and the whole the whole thing is the better to eat with. I mean this is what the head is all about. You know, and we get so uh mm. this is me, we look in the mirror and it's interesting, isn't it? Uh It was one of these passages. Well, the Buddha really wants us to look closely at what this package is, at what's going on here. And um, one of the main things he does is to try to break our attachment to this body as a wonderful, you know, a wonderful thing and something we should try to preserve forever and ever. In the Satipatthana Sutra, there's a uh, one of the exercises, one of the reflections suggested uh, on the body to understand the body is the meditation on the 32 parts of the body, also known as the reflection on foulness. And uh, you go through the body piece by piece, like hair and, and nails and pus and urine and teeth. And, you know, you just, you take it apart. When it's all together in the package and we've put, you know, a nice colorful dress on it and, you know, painted it up a little and, and coiffed it, coiffed it? Quaffed it, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, I'm not up on that kind of thing, but... <laughs> You know, it, we, we can get pretty attached to it and we can think, oh, this is wonderful. But when we st really start to take it apart and see what's here, what, what, what is the composition of it? My, my teacher, uh, S.N. Goenka, used to say, oh, you go out with your girlfriend and you 
stroke her hair and oh your beautiful hair and then three years later you know she serves you your soup and there's a hair in your soup and <laughs> what is this hair you know it's And what is this face? In the Visuddhi Magga, it says that this face is like an insect's nest, full of holes. <laughs> it describes the brain as a lump of marrow, the color of a toadstool, or the color of milk gone sour. But the main thing that Buddha did to try to break our attachment to this body, and also to motivate us to practice, he had us reflect on our own death. He said, just as in the jungle the elephant's footprint is supreme, just so of all the mindfulness meditations that I teach, the meditation on death is supreme. And he had his followers, his monk uh, Sangha, go out to the burning ghats and uh, to the cemetery and to sit among the corpses. This was the instructions. The nine cemetery contemplations. Also in the Satipatthana Sutra under the mindfulness of the body. If a monk sees a body dead one, two or three days, swollen, blue, festering, thrown in the charnel ground, he then applies this perception to his own body. Verily, my own body is of the same nature. Such it will become and will not escape it. That's the first contemplation. Further, if a monk sees a body thrown in the charnel ground being eaten by crows, hawks, vultures, dogs, or by different kinds of worms, he then applies this perception to his own body. Verily, my own body is of the same nature on and on through the bones coming apart, the tendons drying up, everything till the end. The last is uh, if you see a body thrown into the charnel ground, reduced to bones, gone rotten and become dust, then you apply this perception to your own body. It was very important to him to uh, have us reflect on our own death. He said there are three root things to reflect on. One is the inevitability of your death. Number two is the fact that you don't know when it's going to happen. You have no idea. Could happen at any time. And the third is to reflect on what you will hold dear at the moment of your death. And the conclusion being that uh, however much you embody the Dharma and are immersed in the Dharma, that you will hold very dear at the time of your death. The Tibetans say, a day that goes by without thinking on your own death is a wasted day. In Zen they say, die before you die. And then when death comes you can say, no problem, been there, done that. It's like uh, Carlos Castaneda. He was told by Don Juan to keep death over his left shoulder because it always would remind you of how to live in the present. 
because there aren't that many of them in this life. The great West African saying, when death comes, may it find you alive. So I'd like us to just do a very brief reflection. You don't have to get into any special posture. Just close your eyes for a few moments. And just feel your body. Feel the aliveness. We begin with that always. This pulsing, sensate, conscious being. And inwardly acknowledge to yourself that at some time, for some reason, the strength will ebb from this body. You will no longer be able to hold yourself upright. Acknowledge to yourself that at some moment, for some reason, your senses will begin to dim. Hearing will fade. Sensations will Become numb. (coughs) Acknowledge to yourself deeply that at some moment your heart will cease to beat. Your breath will stop. This whole process that gives you life this vitality will end. Your flesh will begin to grow cold, the cells no longer getting oxygen, no fuel. The cells will die. No blood goes to the brain. The memory that only you hold of your life will be erased.
Acknowledge to yourself that this is inevitable. Notice if any emotion appears when you acknowledge this, perhaps fear or sorrow, perhaps relief. Just for a few moments, you might imagine saying goodbye. To friends, loved ones, to the earth. The sights and sounds the tastes. Okay, let's resurrect ourselves by just coming back into this alive body, feeling our aliveness fully, letting it reverberate the breath. Notice the senses. Consciousness. I try to do that regularly, sometimes more or less elaborately, but it's a wonderful exercise, you know, and the purpose of it is to bring you into this moment and into a kind of gratitude and recognition of your own aliveness, which is usually missing. We take it for granted. Of course I'm alive. But, you know, it's a pretty rare thing in our neighborhood of the Milky Way, at least, this phenomena. Autumn's a good time to think about it. Anybody, uh, any reactions? Uh, anybody have, yeah? Yeah, I have a 
You know, that's a, it's an interesting point you raised because I feel that uh, quite often. I mean, and I think from what I gather from reading the Buddha and, you know, the sages, there is a sense of seeing this as just one of many realms and one of many worlds and universes. And it's just not... You know, I, I mean, we put so much weight on it because we say we're the center of it all and this is what it's all about. And maybe it's a lot bigger than that. Uh, but on the, at the same time, there is this urge, and maybe it's connected to our sense of survival, that we, we want to see this experiment but go on, you know. I mean, we, what will happen? I mean, I don't know what other reason there is for continuing it. Right? Do you, do what, why do you want it to go on? It's because, you know, I mean, it, it's, I think it's perfectly natural to want it to go on. And I think it's honorable to try to... See, it, I guess it's not a matter of saving it as it is a matter of eliminating as much suffering as you can. And that is sort of the bottom line. Now, maybe the way you can eliminate the most suffering is by telling people, don't hold on to this, this species or this life or this planet. I'm just throwing that out. I'm not, you know, I don't want to disabuse you of, you know, political or social action or environmental work. Or, I mean, I think it's noble and it's wonderful because it, it begins to expand your sense of self you're no longer living just for you. You know, you have a, a bigger uh, sort of identity. And, and that in itself is, is a good reason to do that kind of work. But, I mean, the Buddha is, is always talking about, you know, this is a ghost-like place. Um, Well, you, you've heard enough of that stuff. <laughs> but, you know that famous uh, line, thus shall you view the world, a, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. Anybody else have any... Uh, reactions to that exercise anybody feel relief when when uh, yeah relief take off and get to take off the mask and yeah yeah right to see your disbelief right
Yeah, and then, you know, there, there's a, it's a legitimate question. Why should I think about it? You know, it's going to come and, you know, I'll you know, deal with it when he gets here. But um, I have a few poems here. We have a little time there. In, in Japan, it was a tradition among uh, wandering uh, sadhus and uh, Zen monks and artists. Uh, they started the tradition, and uh, it also became common in the samurai warrior clans to write a death poem. And it was cheating to write the poem a long time before your death. You know, you were supposed to write your poem just as you were about to uh, die to show um, that you were not, you know, necessarily affected by this, this experience, upcoming experience. The samurai, uh, when they, one clan would capture a bunch of uh, another clan's uh, warriors and bring them in for execution. It was common to, to execute them. Uh, they would often have in the execution room the block and the guy standing there with the sword and right next to it would be a, pen, a stand with ink and a quill or a pen so that they could write their death poem before they put their head in the, in the chopping block. Anyway, there's a wonderful book out uh, called Japanese Death Poems. I'll read you a couple of them. Some of them are, are from samurai, and some of them are, are Buddhist monks. And uh, So this was a, a samurai warrior just about to become, be executed. His name was Sukitomo. This was his death poem. All five manners of my fleeting form and its four elements will return to naught. I put my neck to the unsheathed sword. Its cut will be but a breath of wind. Another uh, samurai warrior, Shoan. The sharp-edged sword, unsheathed, will cut through the void. Within this raging fire, a cool wind will blow. And uh, Dokan, who was a scholar and a poet was stabbed as he was bathing and clutching the dagger he uttered his death poem and we can only assume that it was taken down by the guy who stabbed him <laughs> had I not known that I was dead already I would mourn my loss of life this was a uh, a poet, a Buddhist monk, and one of the first composers of haiku, a man named Sokan. This was his death poem. Should someone ask where Sokan went, just say he had some business in the other world. Iki, another poet. I thought to live two centuries or three, yet here comes death to me. A child, 85 years old. Kiyoriku. Uh, very uh, egotistical pupil of Basho, the founder of haiku. He expected to become the, the next master haiku poet. And uh, he was very full of himself. And he knew it and everybody else knew it. This was his Kiyoriku's uh, death poem. Till now, I thought that death befell the untalented alone. 
If those with talent too must die, surely they make a better manure. And uh, Kozan, uh, a Zen master who uh, told his pupils not to have any ceremony when he died, just toss him in the cemetery. And, uh, and he died sitting in meditation, which is a very auspicious thing. Uh, often that, that was considered a very high state. This was his death poem. Empty-handed I entered the world, barefoot I leave it, my coming, my going, two simple happenings that got entangled. And just a couple more uh, haiku poems, death poems. Joseki died at the age of 85 in 1779. Zen monk. This must be my birthday there in paradise. Kiba died at the age of 90, 1868. My old body, a drop of dew grown heavy at the leaf tip. Tojaku, I go back to the void where frost and snow won't bother me. Beautiful, uh, some beautiful sentiments of uh, sort of nonchalance in the face of death. Um, I have a couple of American Western poems about death. I mean, we're going to play with death, right, in the next uh, few weeks here? Not in the Castro, of course, but... <laughs> you know, we, it's, it's the time when we do that. We, we kind of show our skeleton. We kind of... For just that time, we're, we, we play and say, this is what's underneath all this. This is Hafiz. Death is a favor to us. Thich Nhat Hanh always used to say that too. Impermanence. He said we should rejoice at impermanence. If, ever, if, it, if it wasn't for impermanence, everything would be frozen solid. There were, the name of life, is life itself is defined by impermanence. Death is a favor to us, but our scales have lost their balance. The impermanence of the body should give us great clarity, deepening the wonder in our senses and eyes of this mysterious existence we share and are surely just traveling through. If I were in the tavern tonight, Hafiz would call for drinks. And as the master poured, I would be reminded that all I know of life and myself is that we are just a midair flight of golden wine between his pitcher and his cup. If I were in the tavern tonight, I would buy freely for everyone in this world because our marriage with the cruel beauty of time and space cannot endure very long. Death is a favor to us, but our minds have lost their balance. The miraculous existence and impermanence of form 
always makes the illumined ones laugh and sing. The miraculous existence and impermanence of form always makes the illumined ones laugh and sing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.